you made it. Give yourselves a round of applause. It is, yes, it is the, the flawed yet faithful finale. It is week 13. In, in Peter's final letter, I want to remind you, like we did last week, uh, once again, uh, that he wrote Second Peter to suffering Christians. It's the same network of churches that he wrote to in First Peter. And we kind of, when we approached First Peter, we, we talked a lot about the history and the context of all of that. Well, what was he saying to them? He was, he was preaching to them. He was reminding them, like, hey, stay strong. Keep the faith. It is so important to continue to grow with God and live in beloved community together. But in between these letters, between what we call, at least, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, I don't think he would call his letters that, that's weird, but what we call 1 Peter and 2 Peter, in between these, Peter has heard some very discouraging news. And the first is that Peter knows he's going to die soon. He's got word that, that the end of his life is near, and it is coming. The other discouraging news that he's been given is that bad teaching has infiltrated these churches that he loves, that he helped plant and, and start. And like any good preacher, Peter has to remind these Christians of the gospel. Now, let's, let's be honest. Y'all might think we, more or less, preach the same thing every single Sunday, and you would more or less be correct. Because... Our souls need this reminder. Our lives depend on this. And Peter is doing the same thing for these Christians. And so let's walk through some of these objections that these false teachers have showed up with. Uh, the bad teaching that they have brought about. Let's talk about these. There are three objections that Peter answers. And here they are. Objection number one, the apostles made this up. This whole Jesus thing, it's all made up. And you know, we hear this sometimes today as well, don't we? Well, here is Peter's amazing response to this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we did read this last week, but it's informing us today. Verse 16, Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying, we saw it for ourselves, guys. This isn't just some old story or a parable or a legend or anything. We lived this thing ourselves. Verse 17, Peter then says, he, that's Jesus, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. I think if you flash back to our week four or something like that, a flawed yet faithful, we talked about that moment where Peter then wanted to build tents. And it was kind of a weird thing Peter wanted to do, but he's still saying, not only did we witness it, not only were we there, we, we, we didn't just see it for ourselves. God endorsed Jesus. End of discussion. Objection number one is done. That was pretty easy, right? Yeah, Peter did a pretty good job. 
Uh, let's see if the next ones are, are this easy. Objection number two that Peter then goes, goes uh, into. Objection two, there won't be a final judgment. You know, for me, as I think about this, I think it's a real bummer that they didn't have John's revelation at this point in church history for everyone to read. You know, like, oh, yeah, yep, there is. It's all right there for us, right? So without that, what is Peter to do? Peter highlights some Old Testament stories to show God's history of divine justice. And this is a very important and. God's justice and deliverance. Always both. Peter uses rebellious angels from Genesis chapter 6. He then uses God's justice in flooding the earth from Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And, and the third one, the third is from Genesis 19 with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And while God is just in his judgments, he always delivers his people in every story as well. And Peter is making this case to the, the, the false teachers, the bad teaching that has come into the church, who, the people who are saying there's not going to be any sort of final judgment. That's, that's not going to happen. Peter is saying, oh, it won't? Bet. Have you ever read the Old Testament? Let's go into the Old Testament a little bit and let's see. He's making the case. God has done this before. He is consistent and he will do it again. But the beauty and the difference, obviously, is Jesus. And so chapter 2 concludes with Peter calling these false teachers hypocrites and actually warns them that because God is consistent, that they are now in danger of God's wrath as he calls them slaves to their own sin and desires and how they deny the way of Jesus. And, and just as a personal aside here, I think it's very fascinating that Peter says that much at the end of chapter 2. I think Peter knows these people. If he doesn't know them, he at least knows of them. To be able to call them out like that is very interesting. Now, objection number two, that's how Peter decided to handle it. So we only have a third objection left. And again, I think we hear this today uh, a pretty decent amount as well. So Second uh, Peter in chapter three, Peter deals with objection number three, the objection. This is all taking too long. This is the spirit of every kid on a road trip, honestly. Oh my goodness. But the idea is Jesus return, that whole thing, you know, it's taking too long. And, and this was ob objected uh, 1900 years ago, okay? And they were already saying it back then, okay? Um, and so it's a common idea today. This whole Jesus coming back thing, it's not going to happen. But look at the beauty by which Peter answers this in chapter 3, verse 8. Look at this, verse 8. Peter says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. We'll pause right there. Listen, a lot of folks get hung up on this one verse and they'll kind of make some essential theological claims on this one verse. And, and maybe it has to do with Jesus' return. Maybe it has to do with the age of the earth. That is not the point. You can have opinions like that. It's fine. 
That's not the point of what Peter is saying. Don't get hung up on that aspect. Peter mentions this because, look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Isn't it just so beautiful? Peter is tapping into an ancient truth that is still true today, that God will fulfill his promise. But it's not taking so long because God is dragging his feet, but because God loves you and he is patient with you and he is pac he's patient with the generations after you. Why? Because it is, to quote Peter, it is not God's will that anyone would die apart from him, but that everyone would come to repentance. Or in my very simplistic Eastern Kentucky way of understanding, God loves his kids. He loves his kids and he keeps his promises. So, so we don't need to get caught up in thinking none of this matters or that Christ will never return. But, but here's my interpretation of what Peter is saying right here. You'll see this on the screen. God loves you and God keeps his promises. Those three objections could not have been that easy to refute, could they? Actually, yes, they were. And that is why if you have your Bible with you, you can see 2 Peter is only three chapters long. And listen, people will always have opinions about God, faith, the Bible, Jesus, and so on. But what gives me peace is that throughout Scripture and throughout my faith journey, God's truth has been more consistent than the fleeting opinions of other people, the, 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 the fleeting objections of others. And so when people get hung up on certain objections to Christian faith, you will learn one of two things about them. I'm going to step on some toes here, but I think it's really, really important to understand this. When someone has an objection about the Bible, an objection about God or faith or whatever, we want to handle it delicately. But there are two things that you will learn one of two things about them. One is that if it is honest doubt, if it is sincere, then they will welcome you into it. They want help understanding they desire a fuller perspective, a broader picture, and that is great. I have been there, and I know people who have been there. It is perfectly fine to have sincere doubt and to plead with God about the truth, to, to get wisdom from others who are further down the road than you. I think that can be very beneficial to your faith. Or there's the second type of person. If they were already looking for a way out of it, it will not take much for them to leave because objections will come and objections will go. But I have personally seen enough sincere doubt to know the difference in someone who is truly wrestling with God and someone who's really just kind of wrestling to justify what the Bible calls sin. If I can interpret Peter's words here, this is the idea Peter is getting at with these false teachers in mind that God loves you and God keeps his promises. It's not one or the other, it is both. God 
is infatuated by you and he loves you. He desires a relationship with you. He wants no one to perish. And God keeps his promises. What he said he will do, he will do. And that is Second Peter. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that's Second Peter. Now, before we drop the curtain on the series, before we get our hearts ready for Gratitude Sunday next week or Advent, let's do something that Peter was trying to do here. He was, he was you know, making a defense for the gospel. And so, in like manner, let's make a practical case for the gospel and let's use the lives of Peter's friends and himself to do it. These are the people who experience Jesus in the flesh. They experienced the early moves of the Holy Spirit, and they did it all. So, with this in mind, let's examine the lives of these disciples and apostles, and let's ask this question. Would someone, let alone many someones, die horrible deaths for a grand fabrication? or a conspiracy. This will get a little heavy for a few moments, but for the Christians listening, for the Christians in the room, this really should encourage and inspire and embolden your faith because, church, we stand on the shoulders of some of the most courageous people to ever live, Peter certainly being one of them. But for the skeptic today, Think about this question. Let's use some practical reason and consider the lives and deaths of these men because you can't really do a sermon series on Simon Peter and not mention how he died. So we're going to work through some of his friends first, and we will conclude with Peter's death. But here is how the disciples and apostles died. One clarifying point. Uh, Very little is in your Bible about the death of the disciples and apostles. We already talked about Stephen a few weeks ago and, and the grace that he died with, echoing the words of Jesus, don't hold this against them, God. They don't know what they're doing. And so uh, most, uh, everything that that we are going to go over today, I should say, everything we're about to go over is held by church tradition and and the historians who were alive at the time. Let's talk about some of these apostles and some of these disciples. We certainly don't have time to go through all of them, but we're going to go through a number of them. And so first up, we have Matthew, also known in your Bible as Levi. Uh, The author of the gospel named after him, by the way, it includes more than 130 Old Testament references in Matthew's gospel. These references helped Matthew's Jewish audience see that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Matthew did a lot of incredible work. And if you notice in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew never ever says the kingdom of God. Even when he's quoting Jesus, because of his Jewish audience, you don't say God, you don't say Yahweh. So instead, Matthew, knowing his audience, always wrote 
kingdom of heaven. Because Matthew is trying to get this audience to understand that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. Matthew did some incredible work. It is believed he was martyred in 60 AD in Ethiopia in one of two ways. He was either being stabbed to death or he was impaled and fixed to the ground and refused to renounce his faith in Christ. We have Mark or John Mark. He authored the gospel named after him. Uh, Some interesting facts about Mark is that the Last Supper held the night before Jesus was executed was held in Mark's home. When the Holy Spirit, the helper that Jesus promised, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in the upper room, that also took place in Mark's home. Mark would go on preaching trips with Barnabas and Paul through Rome and was eventually on mission in Egypt. Mark, refusing to renounce his faith in Jesus, was martyred in 68 AD in Alexandria, Egypt, after being dragged by horses through the streets for everyone to see until he was dead. Next, we have Luke. Luke authored the gospel named after him and the book of Acts. He was born in Syria and trained as a physician. He traveled with the apostle Paul often on his mission journeys through Rome, and was arrested with Paul a few times as well. Luke is someone I very much look forward to talking with in heaven because he's going to have some incredible stories. Around 84 AD, Luke was older in age, but Luke was hanged in Greece by pagans as a result of his preaching of the gospel. John, who also has a gospel named after him, he faced martyrdom when he was boiled in a large basin of boiling water during the first wave of Christian persecution in Rome. John, however, miraculously survived. So he was sentenced to the mines on the prison island of Patmos. John wrote the prophetic book of revelation while he was there. The apostle John was later freed and returned to serve as bishop of Edessa in modern day Turkey. John was the only one to die an old man about a hundred years old peacefully. Next we have James the less, the less meaning younger. He's the son of Alphaeus and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James was thrown over a hundred feet down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny faith in Christ. Tradition holds that when it was discovered that he survived this fall, his enemies beat him to death with clubs. And this was at the same pinnacle where Satan had taken Jesus during the temptation of Luke chapter 4. Next, we have James, the son of Zebedee. He was a fisherman by trade when Jesus called him to lifetime ministry. As a strong leader of the early church, he eventually went on trial for his faith. He went on trial for his faith around 44 AD. 
the Roman officer who guarded James during the trial, watched in amazement as James defended his faith over and over and over, day after day. Once James was found guilty and sentenced to death, tradition holds that the same officer who listened to James' passionate preaching for days is the same officer that then walked James to his execution. And as they arrived, that officer, so overcome by conviction, declared faith in Jesus to the judge's face. And that officer, knowing what it meant, knelt beside James, and the two men were beheaded together. Next, we have Bartholomew. He was also known as Nathaniel. He was a missionary to Asia, perhaps the most traveled of all disciples after Jesus' death. He preached the gospel in modern-day Iraq, Iran, and Ethiopia, Arabia, and India. Bartholomew was martyred for having converted Polymus. He was a local king in Armenia to Christianity in 68 AD. Bartholomew was skinned alive. He was flayed. And then he was beheaded. Bartholomew never renounced faith in Jesus. We have Andrew. If you remember, Andrew is the brother of our flawed yet faithful friend, Simon Peter. Andrew was baptized by John the Baptist and was the first disciple of Jesus, along with his brother. It's not clear exactly when, but sometime between 60 and 70 AD, Andrew was severely whipped by soldiers who then tied his body to an X-shaped cross. But instead of nails, they used cords because they believed it would prolong his suffering. This took place in Greece. Andrew's followers reported that when he was led toward the X-shaped cross, Andrew saluted it and said these words, I have long desired and, ex and, and expected this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it. And Andrew continued to preach to the people who tortured him for two days as he hung until he died. We now have Thomas, commonly referred to, unfortunately, as Doubting Thomas. Thomas's real name is not much better, Judas. I mean, obviously, that has negative connotations with Judas Iscariot being the one who betrayed Jesus. So Thomas had a few nicknames, and one of them was simply the twin. And to local Syrians, he was also called Judas Thomas. Thomas preached the gospel in, again, modern-day Iran and southern India, where in southern India, to this day, the church he founded in 52 AD still stands. 
Y'all, that is a church 1,971 years old. It still exists. It still stands in southern India today. For those interested, the name of the church is Martoma Church. Toma after Thomas. It is in the Orthodox tradition and has a very active Facebook page and social media presence. Now, Thomas was initially reluctant to go to India when the apostles first divided up their missionary labors. Thomas, tradition holds, he claimed, Hebrews can't teach Indians. Safe to say Thomas was wrong. The apostle Thomas was eventually martyred for his faith as he was stabbed with a spear in India during one of his missionary trips. Uh, We have Jude, also known as Thaddeus. He authored the New Testament book, Jude. Jude was eventually martyred for his faith, being beaten with a club and then crucified around 72 AD in Edessa, modern-day Turkey, while he was on mission to Persia. We have Matthias. If you remember, Matthias was appointed by Peter and then agreed upon by the other disciples that he would replace Judas Iscariot in Acts chapter 1. Matthias was eventually stoned and ultimately beheaded for his faith in Jerusalem. We have Philip. Um, Philip preached a lot in the Roman province of uh, Asia near Ephesus, and it is believed that in 54 AD in Egypt that Philip was tortured. He was impaled by iron hooks in his ankles, and Philip was hung upside down. And Philip preached upside down to the people who tortured him until he died. Next, we have Simon. Simon was known as the Zealot because he was associated with a political sect. And while he was apparently an extremist, it is believed he ministered mostly in Jordan. Not much is known, but Simon would go on to be martyred around 74 AD, where he was also sawed in half. Just two more, I know, I know, two more. Next we have Paul, someone we know very well, formerly known as Saul. Paul was a missionary, a preacher, and an apologist. We could add church planter to that too. He endured a lengthy imprisonment, but it allowed him to write many epistles to the churches he had formed throughout the Roman Empire. And these letters, which taught many foundational doctrines of Christian faith, these letters form a large portion of your New Testament. Paul would be tortured and beheaded by the malicious Emperor Nero in Rome in 67 AD. And lastly, we have our flawed yet faithful Peter. Peter, the disciple, the church leader, the church elder, the rock, the stumbling block at times, the author, the preacher, the bold, the passionate. For better or for worse, Peter did it all. It's taken us 13 weeks to walk through his life. It was on Peter's statement of faith to Jesus, you are the Christ, that honestly, we exist today. 
through the hundreds and almost 2,000 years of church history, here we are because there Peter stood. And so, in 68 AD, Peter would also suffer at the hands of the evil Emperor Nero, who put Peter to death by crucifixion like Jesus. However, at Peter's request, instead of being crucified right side up, Peter asked that he instead would be crucified upside down as he felt unworthy to die the same way of his friend, his Lord and Savior, Jesus. And while that concluded the life of Peter, it did not stop his legacy. It did not stop the love of God. It did not stop the Holy Spirit. It did not stop the church because it was just beginning. And that is the beautiful thing about new life in Jesus because what the world calls the end, the Father calls a new beginning. What the world calls darkness, the Father sees as opportunity for the light. And what you may call finished, done, and dead, Jesus says, not yet, undone, and resurrected. If that is the power of God, that is the gift of Jesus and the active presence of the Holy Spirit. It is here, it is now, it is among us, it is upon us. The issue is whether our eyes are open and we're aware of it. This love that captivated the hearts of men and women so much so that they would be willing to be tortured for it, willing to die for it. This love is still accessible to you, to me, for us, for you. And God's desire is for this love to then go through you and touch the lives of others. Yes, you are very flawed. You've got plenty of excuses to avoid it, to ignore it, and frankly, to waste it. But God is so good that even when we show a glimmer of faithfulness, that he uses it and he blesses others with it. That is how good God is. So as we wrap up, I think if, if Peter were here today, if we were to, to hand him a microphone, I think he would encourage us the same way he encouraged those suffering Christians back then. Stay strong. Keep the faith. Press on. Do not shrink back, but step up. Stand firm and give this gospel that I died for, that, that many died for, give this to the lost, the hurting, the broken, and the unworthy, the dying, because while we have hope, they do not. This gospel is worth telling, living, and dying for. As Peter said it himself in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. He's patient when you're backward. He's patient when you're stubborn. He's patient when you're, if you will, backslidden. He's patient when you doubt. He's he's patient when you're just ensnared with sin. He's patient with you. Why? Because he doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to come in repentance because there is freedom. And here are Peter's final words that we have in verse 17. Peter's last known writing is, therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen, church. Amen.